This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, I am told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. It's the 116th episode of Play by Play Cast. Thanks as always for the subscribe, the stream, the download, however you have found this here podcast, be it on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere else. As always, you can find the pod on social media at PXPCast. You can find me at Joel Godet, J O E L G O D E T T, or you can shoot me an email, J G O D E T T at BSU.edu. If you get a second while you're listening, take a time out. Throw some stars, rating, review our way. It lets people know that you like what you hear or let us know that you like what you hear or vice versa. Uh, it is much appreciated as always. Of course, this is the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster, a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, process, stories, and preparation of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. Episode 116 is with the three-decade-plus voice of the Dallas Cowboys, Brad Sham. And we'll get to Brad here in just a second, but I want to take a quick detour uh, before we get into today's conversation. And it's a long one, so I apologize in advance um, because I don't want to take too much more time off the top. But... Interesting thing that happened to me over the last week, and that is that, you know, so I went to adult summer camp last week, which is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, Friday evening, Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night into Sunday morning, uh, drove down to Cincinnati-ish, which is about two hours from where I live, and and went to adult summer camp, like jet ski, living cabins, ropes course, uh, s'mores, campfire, guitar, all all that good stuff beverages of an adult nature um you know summer camp stuff except for the you know the beer because we didn't do that when I was 14 um but it's with a lot of people that I knew and with a lot of people that I didn't know and it got me thinking because every time I talk to people that I'm meeting for the first time and tell them what I do and then hear what they do for a living like just different thoughts churn through my brain. And the reason is, is like, I go back to something Nick Wright once said, and this was before he was famous. Nick Wright. He was, I think at that point, like local Kansas city radio personality, Nick Wright, uh, still very good at what he did as he is now. Uh, Nick Wright and I went to college together at Syracuse. I think he's a year. He might be two years older than me, but there was an interview he did where he talked about, like, basically, like, it might not have even been an interview, it might have just been a conversation, uh, where he talked about having, like, a fake job. Like, it's, it's not a real, like, what we do as broadcasters, as sports talk hosts, as play-by-play announcers, it's not, it's not a real job. It's a fake job. Like, if, it's fun. Like, we get paid to have fun. Grand scheme of things. And it's one of the, the feelings I've always had when I talk to people who are, like, doctors, or lawyers, or, or, or early childhood education professionals, teachers, things of that nature. Um, you know, if there were no more teachers ever, like, that would be a problem. Um, we'd all be stupid. Uh, or, or we'd have to be self-taught, which, you know, I, I imagine is conceivable. Uh, if there were no more doctors, that would be a problem. Like, lots of people would die. Uh, 
there are there are jobs that just impact people's lives so obviously and directly. And every time I talk to people that have those jobs, I always like it's one of those things where you, you you're like, oh, gosh, like I wish I could do that. I wish I could do that in my fake job. Because in my job, I just talk about sports. And if a play-by-play announcer did not exist, like, would the world continue? And I've always asked myself that question. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it would. Like, if nobody had ever... Now it'd be weird because we're so used to it. Like, something everybody's accustomed to would vanish. That'd be odd. But if a play-by-play announcer had never existed, I don't know how much different the world would be. Overall probably be pretty similar like yeah sure as sports fans we'd be missing something like i'm sure some of us would watch games and like want a soundtrack or like you'd be driving the car and thinking gosh i wish i could find out what's going on in the yankees game um but on the whole it wouldn't be too much different and i've always thought to myself like i i wish there was something else i could do in addition professionally that would more directly touch people's lives because I don't always feel that what I do as a play-by-play announcer does that. So I use that as the preface for the fact that I got a really cool email uh, this past week. And it changed how I think about everything I just said because I've never had somebody say something like this to me before. I've always had people say, you know, I... I think you're funny, and you know, I, I love this call, and we listened to the game and thought you did a great job. Um, I'm sure some people think the, the, the antithesis of that as well, um, but like that's always the feedback I've gotten in my life. I've never gotten like, what you said changed my life. Um, but I got an email over the weekend last week, while I was at summer camp, by the way, that said, and this was from the CrossFit Games. And what's cool about doing the CrossFit games is it's different than any other play-by-play I do normally. I broadcast, and most of us do normally. Like, I broadcast athletes. Like, I broadcast college athletes. They are athletes. That is what they do. I mean, they're students. They're student athletes. But, like, they're known for being athletes. They're covered as such. Minor league baseball players. They're athletes. They're covered as such. What's cool to me about CrossFit is that, in some instances, they are athletes, but in a lot of instances, they're normal people who have cool stories who also do CrossFit well enough that they're on this stage. And one of the things that's cool about the CrossFit games is that I get to tell these stories of regular, everyday people that just so happen to be really good at this particular sport. So with that in mind, I got an email this past week that put into perspective a little bit about um, the impact you can have as a play-by-play broadcaster be, uh, above and beyond entertaining somebody. And I'll read this email to you. It was from one of the competitors uh, in the Masters divisions, so ages 35 and up. Uh, and it said, this particular athlete, uh, her father had passed away the last time she had been to the games and was competing for her father that last time. She always wanted to go to the games, told her dad that, never got a chance to tell her dad that she had made it to the games because he had passed away. And uh, this past year, her mom was sick. And uh, while she competed the first time at the games for her dad, she was competing in 2018 for her now ill mother. 
And uh, in talking to her before the games, emailing back and forth, uh, that story came out, and it was one that I wanted to, to highlight during the games. Um, and I shouted out her mother by name, passed along our best wishes as a broadcast team, um, and told the story a little bit about uh, this particular competitor. And I got an email back that says, Hi, Joel. Just wanted to thank you for the mention during the CrossFit Games you did for my mom. She got to hear it, and it means a lot. It made her feel very proud. I returned from the Games to find her condition had deteriorated, and she's very frail, and we're on borrowed time. What you did is invaluable, and I'm very grateful. Best regards. Um, and that's cool. Because... Here we are doing something that a lot of times you think about as a fake job. Like, if we didn't exist, the world would still go on. Um, And by doing something as simple as asking the question, is there anything else I need to know before we do this about you? And somebody being open and willing enough to respond with the information they did. And then crafting it and telling it the right way. You can make the impact of that to somebody at home. And uh, I thought that was cool. And uh, it was a, a, a cool pick-me-up for uh, for the weekend. I'll leave, uh, I'll leave you on that note as we get into our interview with Brad Sham today. Uh, for more than three decades, with a brief respite in the middle... He has been the voice of the Dallas Cowboys. He started originally as the color commentator with the Dallas Cowboys. The play-by-play man was Vern Lundquist. We'll touch a little bit about uh, his play-by-play and color responsibilities and uh, how those two roles switched early on in his career when he eventually took over uh, the play-by-play chair. Talk a little bit about football, play-by-play, the mechanics behind it, uh, what he sees as good football play-by-play and and how to get there. Uh, We'll dive into all that stuff today. And then uh, Brad Sham and I also share the fact that we are both members of the tribe. Um, so we'll talk about uh, the the Sandy Koufax broadcaster relationship a little bit. Uh, do you or do you not broadcast on the high holidays, which is uh, coming up here in a couple of weeks. Uh, Brad Sham is our guest this week. We start with his first role with the Dallas Cowboys. That is color analyst. You know, I, I had done, I mean, clearly it wasn't what I was cut out for, uh, but um but I, and I don't remember the uh, sequence, but there have been other times that I've done uh, some color, and it might have been a little bit after that because I, I worked with the uh, Southwest, the old Southwest Conference had various iterations of radio networks, and there were some times when um, they hired announcers who were doing various schools, and, and we would trade off. And we would do one would do half the game. The SMU announcer would do play by play half the game, and the other, the Rice announcer would do the other half. That kind of thing. But it's clearly not what I'm cut out to do. Um, the funny thing is that the way the way things have evolved, that that was just a part of my job. I think the main part of my job when I started there in uh, 1976 was to do a talk show and I was doing several sports casts a day and I was sharing SMU basketball with the late Frank Gleber. And then part of the job 
in uh, 76 when I started in, in October was to do Color on the Road. And Bob Lilly had just retired and he was doing um, Color at Home. So I did pregame, halftime, and post, excuse me, postgame. And, um, you know, I think I started off just full of enthusiasm to have the job. And then as I listened to myself and literally listened to myself on tape and felt as we were going along, I could feel like, okay, this, this is not what I'm best at. So let's really scrutinize it and figure out how to get better. One of the things I found out pretty quick was that there was a, although we weren't using the word uh, analyst 40 years ago, um, that's really what the job needed, not a color person. A color person kind of connoted that you knew a lot of stuff about the players. And as I listened to the tape, uh, I realized that nobody cared where the guy went to college or what his major was. Or, I mean, they cared where he went to college, but nobody cared what he, you know, not during the game. They wanted to read about that stuff later, but during the game, you better talk about during the game. So I set out to really study and listen a lot and answer, uh, ask questions of people who understood the game better than I did because, as you pointed out, I didn't ever play it. And uh, once I did that, then I think it was a lot more comfortable. How much better and are I you? Think that you could, and I think you could – I would say today, I would say it, anyone subsequently could do the same thing. A, a, a person – a person more naturally suited for play-by-play could be an analyst. I would not. I would never say I wouldn't be as good an analyst today as a as a former player or coach, but I could do it, and anyone could do it if you knew what approach to take and, and understood uh, who to ask questions of and and to really listen to the to the answers you got. How much better are you for it now? in your current role, having sat in the seat of the person who's next to you um, and, and understanding a little bit of, of their perspective differently uh, than a lot of play-by-play guys do because they, they haven't been an analyst on a network broadcast of that level? Yeah, Joel, it's a great question, and I think the answer is quite a bit. Um, I, I think that anytime you can uh, have seen the other side, uh, then you uh, – it, it's really like a guy uh, maybe being a uh, – a quarterback in high school and then becoming a safety in college. And you just kind of understand what the other side is doing. It gave me an opportunity. Vern, of course, is one of the, one of the greats in the history of our industry. So what he gave me an opportunity to do was sit right next to him and listen to him talk at what I was watching and try to figure out why I couldn't see the same thing until I could. (laughs) And so, yeah, I think, I think it was, uh, I think it was a, a tremendous aid to me. Well, take me on that process a little bit. What did you do to see the same thing? Um, and, and what eventually got you to, to that point where, where you felt like you were watching the same game? Uh, time and experience would be the answer to the second <laughs> part. And, and I think the, first, the answer to the first part is, you know, if there were things that there may have been times that I um, would – maybe say to him uh you just said that and i didn't see that what what how do you know what'd you see um interestingly the same thing applied 
Um, let's see, that was in the 70s, probably uh, 20 years later when I did uh, Texas Rangers baseball for three years with Eric Nadell, who, who's you know in Cooperstown for his work and a very close friend. And I felt like I knew baseball pretty well, but when I sat next to Eric and watched the game through his eyes and saw and listened to how he was describing the same thing I was looking at, it gave me a different way, hopefully a more thorough way to see it. So I, I, I think it, I would like to say I would recommend it for every young announcer, but I don't know that every young announcer is going to get the opportunity because usually people who are hiring are hiring people who are qualified. Um, and I certainly would not, if that was the job I was going after, I wouldn't have been qualified to get it. That's why the other stuff was, was so critical, uh, in my having that job. But I do think it's a big help. This might be hard to single out one or two things, but are there, are there types of things that you can even look back on now and, and realize Eric or Vern saw it this way? And I never saw it that way until I sat next to them and it's made you better for it. Well, I just think that there are nuances in, in any sport, whatever the sport is that you're doing. I mean, I, I, I think that I became a better play-by-play. I've done a lot of college basketball play-by-play, radio and television. And I think especially in television, when I got to work with uh, guys like I've done some games with Fran Fraschilla and, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, John Sunbold, um, who uh, who played at Missouri and, I think when you, even when you're doing play-by-play and you're sitting with someone who was really a, a, an, an expert player, um, you can start to see things the, that they are describing and understand the way they're looking at it. So I think from doing football with Vern, I'd really, I, I had done some football. I, I did a couple of years of college football in the early seventies with, when Hayden Fry was the coach at the, what was then North Texas State, um, you know, I mean, I did some in high school, but at that level, uh, the 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 nuances were such that I, I would just try to really pay attention. Now, not when I not like the first couple of weeks because I was just way too stupid. I didn't even know what the <laughs> hell I was doing. But as I sat and listened to Vern, and he he would be described now remember we're on the radio so he's he'd be describing a formation and then he would say that the defense gave him a blitz look and i remember thinking to myself uh where <laughs> where how, who i don't see it but then i learned how to see it yeah. and then you and then you talk to the thing about doing it at that level like if you're doing a team or even if you're doing a a conference a school you know, you, you then are going to have access to players and coaches and you're going to be able to say, Hey, when this happens, why does, what do you guys do? And why did you do this? And so then over time, the education process is such that you, you just learn how to look at it differently. When I started, I mean, I've been watching baseball since I was a kid. When I started broadcasting it with Eric, um, he is so good at little details, defensive shading. It would escape me when the infield played in. Uh, it might be two or three pitches before I noticed it. 
So that's situational awareness. There's a big difference between sitting in your living room or in the stands drinking a beer, and even if you're keeping track of the score, you're not thinking about counts and pitch setups and sequences, and and you're not paying attention to how um, a particular pitcher is at holding runners at first as opposed to second and what the shading will be of the defense. All that stuff is how guys get jobs. And so those are things that as I worked with Eric, I was able to pick up and learn and uh, makes me appreciate baseball even more now, frankly. But those are the, you can learn those things. The key is just be keeping your eyes and ears open. And whoever you are at whatever level, whatever experience you've had, don't walk in the door thinking you're the teacher. You know what to do. You've seen it all and you can handle anything. Walk in the door with confidence. Someone thought you could do the job, but walk in the door with an open mind and uh, a sense of curiosity about what lessons you might be able to learn next. I like that. Um, I, 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 that's a really good perspective to have on it. Um, let me ask you about I mean, the- I, I've been doing, Joel, I've been doing this 40 years now. Yeah. And I've been working with Babe Loffenberg for uh, 25. Now, you know, Babe played quarterback in the league for eight years. And, and I say all the time that he is so intuitive offensively. If I were, if I were a head coach or a general manager, I'd hire him to be a, uh, an offensive coordinator in a heartbeat. And even after all this time, I, I want to hear, sometimes I'll ask Babe a question on the air in the course of a broadcast that's designed to satisfy my curiosity. What are they doing? Where's the, and you know, I'm, I'm still, I'm still trying to learn the nuances of defenses and where safety shade and, and how defenses disguise and. I'm I'm sitting here right now watching tape of the uh, of the Cowboys preseason opener, uh, and we're a week away from the second game. But I'm I'm trying to watch these backups because when you're doing a game, you are when you're doing play by play of a game, you're following the ball. And so as we go into this next preseason game, since I have the access and the wherewithal to be able to watch their tape. Um, I really want to see the second and third quarters. I want to see the backup guys who are trying to make the team. How did they do? What didn't they do right? What do they need to improve on? It's going to make me better Saturday night in the second preseason game because I've watched some of this stuff. And that education, I don't know that that education ever stops. Right, so let me ask you about watching tape a little bit. Um, when you're sitting there watching it, like, what are you looking for? And, and how do you know what's important? Um, and, and is it more just of a, this looks interesting, let me make note of it so I can ask the right person so that I can glean from it more than anything else? You know, that's, that is a, uh, a really intelligent question uh, because when I watch tape during the regular season of the other team, that the team that they're playing, I probably will watch the TV copy. And what I want to know for my purposes as a play-by-play announcer is, what what do guys look like in their uniforms? I'm not watching for uh, in those circumstances, or or if I do a network college game or something. I'm really not looking for formations, and um, I, I don't know that I'm smart enough to be able to you know uh, delve into game plans and deep. I want to know. 
I want to know what guys look like. I want to, I'm, I'm kind of a visual learner. And so I want to know that that guy, uh, wears his socks high and he runs upright. And now for this, uh, what it's really interesting that you asked that question because I'm sitting here watching these linemen, these backup linemen, and I'm seeing a couple of things that, gee, that guy didn't seem to get his guy, but as that linebacker shot the gap, he also wasn't looking at him. So I'm making notes to go ask coaches tomorrow. They're off today. I'm going to go ask coaches tomorrow. Okay. If you remember in the second quarter, when you had that play and the, and the, and the mic shot the gap and the, right tackles seem to be trying to get right to the second level. Was there supposed to be a pass off from the center to the guard? So the answer to your question is, and this is what makes it dangerous and why I think you have to keep an open mind. Some of the time I'm looking at it and I don't know exactly what I'm looking at. I don't know what, because I don't know what the assignments are. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so I think it's really dangerous to, to make value judgments that you're going to repeat on the air. Now, what I can see is if a guy's in space, I, I'm really looking at offensive line play a lot right now because I'm watching their second offense, their, their second quarter offense. And, and so, uh, so I want to see the things that you cannot see when you're doing play by play. I want to see where it looks like um, a guard has passed a guy off to a center or vice versa, or when the tackle clearly thought he was supposed to go get that outside linebacker and then does it look like it was the back's responsibility come across the formation and get that defensive end those kinds of things you can't do while you're watching the game live and so if i if i see that a guy is either pretty good or doesn't look to be pretty good um on this tape i have time before the next game to ask the right questions of the people who know uh, that will inform my commentary as we go through the next game. Is Does that it, answer the question? Yeah, no, hundred percent. Is it more for your knowledge too, though, or is it more so that you can set Babe up for something? And is that stuff that you'll discuss ahead of time? Like, hey, Babe, I saw this on film. Um, I just want you to know that you know it, it stood out to me. I spoke to the coaches about it. it it's something that might be good for us to talk about as we go um, and kind of help lead whoever you're working with in the right direction. Uh, it would be instructive perhaps for young people to understand that if you do this on a network level, college or pro, then you have big production meetings uh, a day or two before the game and you'll watch film together and you'll, and you'll talk about those very things. Look at that. What does this mean? I, I don't believe I would ever say to babe, Hey, uh, watch out for the right tackle. He really seems to, <laughs> what I might say to him is, do you see anything in the right tackle? Cause I, I thought I did, but what do you think? Now, one thing that I've learned is that over the, over the course of time, my instincts are sometimes a little better than I want to give myself credit for. And, and sometimes I'm right about what I'm looking at. Um, it, it's not that it's just for me although I'm interested enough in it that if I had access to it and it wasn't part of my job, I'd probably be interested in doing it. Um, on radio, and, and I do uh, usually do the Cotton Bowl on ESPN radio, and those guys, you know, a full-time network uh, radio guy, it, they may be doing five bowl games in a two-week period. So there's not 
much time for that. The producer then is going to get your notes and, um, and babe and I don't really have a production meeting. We, we talk in the, if it's a home game, we're both at the Cowboys complex almost every day and we'll talk and, you know, we'll text. And if it's a road game, we usually sit next to each other on the plane. So we, we got a chance to talk about things we've seen or read. I will absolutely ask him what he thinks about thus and so. Uh, I, it's, I think the answer to the question, Joel, is what I do it for is so that I'm better informed for the audience. Sure. It's not just for me, although I enjoy the heck out of it. It, it is, and it's not just to set Babe up because I'm going to probably, if I have any question about something like that, we, we after 25 years, we kind of know uh, <laughs> each other a little bit, but, but I, you know, I'd be more inclined to uh, let him guide me into how to set him up. But, um, but I do think that if I, if I see something that interests me, then I can talk to him about it not in a formal meeting. Uh, we might be walking down the hall or, you know, on the field before the game. Um, it's funny in football, you find out my experience is that you find out more in football, uh, especially if you are the team announcer in the two and a half hours before the game, than you might all week. <laughs> yeah. Coaches, coaches are, uh, paranoid and they don't want to talk about anything. And then all of a sudden when you get to game day and they don't feel like they can leak out any information that'll hurt them. They'll open up a vein, some of them, and, and they will tell you stuff that will really help inform the way you see the game for your audience. And that's the reason I watch the tape. It's for the audience. It's so that I can be less stupid and more informed for them. I want to ask you about uh, something you said before we got into the tape conversation, too, and that just went into uh, description and detail. Uh, and I mean that even off the field too. There was a, a quote that you had told uh, KERA in an article they wrote uh, where it said, if I smell something, you need to smell it. And if there's shading in a color somewhere, I've got to be able to describe it for you. And it, it takes me back to, I remember when I started doing baseball, I had sent something to be critiqued to someone and there was a foul ball into the stands. And as the ball rattled around in the stands, like my eyes kind of drifted a little bit and I described a little bit of kind of what the stadium was like and, it it didn't happen the right way and and it, it almost seemed forced. Uh, so the question I have for you is kind of the right way to get those things that are a little bit uh, extraneous from the game itself, but important to the environment and how you get those in in, in a natural way that doesn't just seem like, okay, now I'm going to tell you what it's like to be inside the stadium. Okay, back to the game. Uh, again, the part of that is experience, and I would also, although it seems obvious, hasten to remind young people starting off in the business the difference between the approach you take on radio and television. What you're describing and what I was talking to KERA about in that article was from a radio perspective. On television, there are pictures there. You know, the play-by-play person needs to shut up, and the star of the show should be the analyst. Uh, and, and all you really need to do, in my opinion, is just be a bus driver. And, and I don't mean micromanage. I mean, just guide it. Let the analyst rule. And and the pictures will be your story. And the director is going to decide what you see and what you describe. Uh, you're not going to be talking about that foul ball rattling around 
on television if the director doesn't take a picture of it. But if he does, then he's probably going to tell you, hey, we're going we're gonna to go look at this fan scrum over the foul ball. Then you got to be ready to talk about that. But on the radio, and, and one of the things that is um, challenging from an artistic point of view that I think most of us who do radio really enjoy is that you are all the senses. You don't have a picture. And that's why um, my imagined target audience on any play-by-play radio broadcast is a sightless person, a truck driver going cross-country, a woman cleaning out her garage, a guy in a duck blind, well aware that people are watching on television or listening in the stadium while I'm doing it. Those aren't the people I'm mostly talking to. I'm talking to the people who cannot see it, aren't there. And that's why you ha- I say you have to be all the senses. Obviously, you have to describe the play. But if you really want to do your job to the ultimate on the radio, then the, there's a way to describe the way the wind is blowing. You can tell them about uniforms rippling or hot dog wrappers flying around or the way the flags are going. Uh, and, and, uh, color is really important. You just have to, through time with experience, not beat them over the head with it, but an occasional gentle, subtle reminder of, of the Cowboys are wearing blue shirts and, uh, you know, the Eagles are in green and, and, um, those little things that you just drop in unobtrusively, but very intentionally. And if there's, if someone's barbecuing, if there's, if there's some big meat smoker going on in the concourse and you can smell it, absolutely. Let's take the fans right there and let them smell it. If, if there was, was a time when people smoke at games, if someone was smoking a big cigar, and I happen to like cigars. I might say, man, oh man, I wouldn't mind one of those right now. You could all, and you know, you're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but you can do that kind of thing. And so the trick with something like a foul ball that goes rattling around, uh, the chances are, if you heard it, your audience might've heard some of it. And over time you kind of get accustomed to, not taking your attention completely away from the game because the game is always the most important thing. But did you hear that rattling around that ball? That ball hit on the fourth row about six seats in and it bounced up and it hit a pillar. And you can say four things in between pitches that will make them feel like they've seen it. And that's just a question. Just, it's just a matter of doing it. How about the mechanics of a play uh, in and of itself? Uh, when you, I mean, once you get it back from Babe, um, the absolute essential for you every time in setting a play is what? And, and I ask that question, too, keeping in mind the uh, trying to to break up the monotony of, of saying the same thing every time, or maybe the answer is you have to say the same thing every time because you're, you're setting a formation and you're calling a play. So part of that is uh, that there's a, there's a couple of interesting pieces of that. In basketball, which I've done a lot of, um, you have to disabuse yourself of the instinct to describe every touch. 
if you listen to um, particularly an NBA game, you cannot describe every touch of the ball and locate the ball. It's a little easier to do in college, but if you want the analyst to join in and paint the picture and, and uh, big picture the thing for the audience and talk about trends in the game, and that, you're just not you're going to have to tell yourself that it's okay every now and then if you don't describe every touch of the ball. You've got to make sure you know that it's in, and you don't want it to get away from you. And you got to make sure that people know if it's in the front court or the back court, the right side or the left side. You got all kinds of locators on the floor, foul line, elbow, lane. Um, but you don't have to describe every single touch of the ball. In baseball, I would not say that's the case. You have enough time to tell your stories, um, paint your picture, and in between pitches, You've got enough time to reset. I, personally, and I listen to a lot of baseball, and thanks to the internet now and technology, you know you can listen to your favorite team across the country. And I, I think there, I like to uh, to bring the pitcher either into his windup or to a set instead of just all of a sudden saying, "There's a fly ball." Wait, I didn't know the ball was pitched yet. Yeah. So, so I, I that's just me. In so in baseball, I think you have time to talk about whatever you're talking about. Reset the runners. If there's something unusual in the defense, a shift either in the infield or the outfield, and then let the pitcher go through his mechanics. Now in football, one of the most important things to remember is that that question that you ask does not begin with the end of the play. Um, it, it actually begins with, well, I mean, it does, but it, it actually begins with how much I say after the play is over. So if I talk a lot after the play is over, because, you know, in our heads, we all have such wonderful contributions <laughs> to make and, and, I mean, announcers will understand that. It's not a joke. We all really do. We all really think we have further contributions to make. Oh, yeah. And so, and so if I keep talking and he's got less time, the chances are that he's going to still be talking when I would have liked to have had it back, and that's not his fault. That's my fault. So to try to directly answer your question in football on the radio, uh, Ideally, you'd like to have it back as the huddle is being broken. You'd like to be able to set the formation uh, and down and remind them of down and distance. Now, I'll tell you a story that's true and and um, it's told with love. And both of these men are are gone to their reward, and they're both Hall of Famers. Um, in the late eighties. I used to love listening to Jack Buck and Hank Stram doing Monday night football in my car or wherever. And, and I was a big Jack Buck fan, Joe's dad, because I was a kid in the Midwest and you could hear KMOX from St. Louis everywhere. 
And I love Jack Buck, but I noticed there's, there was a stretch there in the late 80s that when you listen to Monday Night Football, it sounded like Jack wasn't telling me what was happening. He was telling me what happened. He was recapping the play instead of describing it. And I thought to myself, oh, that's, that's a shame because I love Jack Buck. And it sounds like maybe he is kind of not able to keep up with it anymore. And then uh, I had the great good fortune a few times um, when Jack was doing the World Series to be asked to fill in for him with Hank on Monday Night Football. And what I found out was that at that stage of his career, Hank's vision wasn't very good. And he had a gigantic pair of binoculars (laughs) that he, depending on where the booth was, and typically they're not in very good locations, uh, sometimes he would use the binoculars to look at the field. Sometimes he would use the binoculars, to, I'm not kidding now, to look at the TV monitor. And and what I noticed was that Hank, trying to locate and orient himself, frequently didn't have anything to say until after the huddle was broken. That's when Jack should be getting it back. That's when Hank would start to talk. So Hank is now adding his observations at the time that the the huddle's being broken, the formation is being set, and the ball's been snapped, and Hank's still talking. <laughs> and and I heard myself a few times recapping the play instead of describing it exactly what I thought Jack had been doing, and that's what Jack had been doing. But now I knew why, and it was a great reminder that. Um, if you want that rhythm, if you want that flow, then you have to be aware of the extent to which you're hogging the mic. The other guy's got a job to do also. If you want him or her to to let you have the action back when you want it, you've got to give them a chance to do their job. And it's really good for self-discipline, and it's one of the things I'm still working on perfecting. I was going to say, when is the, like, uh, there's probably no one answer, but like, when is the appropriate time to get out of the way uh, at the end of a play? And I guess that's changed as the no huddle has really, and, and well, football that's, has sped yeah, up. Well, that, that, is, that is not the, uh, the color analyst friend. And when we play teams that, um, when, we're, when we're doing a game, because the Cowboys don't do a lot of that, but when we're uh, playing a team that goes no huddle, and we have watched tape and we know that that's what they do, you know, that I might jokingly say to Babe, hey, you know, sorry about what's about to happen, and he knows what's coming. <laughs> you know, we, he may go two or three plays before he gets to say anything if they go without a huddle and snap it real fast. Um, I think the, the appropriate time uh, to get out of the way is, generally speaking, when you know the play is over, and you can spot it and re. I don't think on the radio you can ever do too much of giving the score or down in distance. And so you want to recap the play as quickly as you can, uh, reframe it because we understand that most of the time, even even if the people are driving or doing some of those things that I talked about before, their their attention is diverted. It's divided. And rarely is anybody sitting just concentrating on every word that you're saying. And so uh, big picture, broad stroke 
fill in reminders are very useful. And by that, I mean, again, score, down and distance, time. And so when the play is over, I think it's appropriate to remind everyone that it was second and six. That's a game of four, and uh, it's going to be third down and one. And get out of the way and let him work. All right, so I'm going to interrupt Brad for just a second here to tell you about Audible.com. And if you go to the website, audibletrial.com slash pxpcast, here's what you're going to get. 30 days of membership free to audible.com. You're then going to get one credit a month after your trial is up. Good for any audiobook, regardless of price. You'll get ad-free premium audio to listen to offline, no interruptions. You'll get your own amazing library. Keep your books, even if you cancel. So you cancel, you still get the books. Like, they're in your your, your bookshelf. They're not taking them from you. Uh, 30% off in exclusive member-only savings and easy exchanges. You don't love a book, swap it for anything else free anytime. You can try audible.com audiobooks on your phone or other device on us by going to audibletrial.com slash pxpcast, audibletrial.com slash pxpcast, and after 30 days, if you don't like it, just cancel. If you do like it, it's 15 bucks a month, $14.95. You can buy a book for $15. Or you can have audible.com get more than a book and somebody to read it for you. It's like a built-in nanny. Audibletrial.com slash pxpcast. Back to the show. You mentioned framing, and uh, I wanted to kind of bring a couple of things into that conversation because I had heard on the podcast you did on uh, Logan Anderson's pod where you talked about going to the Olympics and the importance of the highlight in the Olympics. Um, and something I've learned from, from Howard Denneroff was framing the moment. And one of the big things he talks about is framing the moment. And you have to hit the highlight and you have to frame each of those. Um, so I, I guess kind of what's what's the way that you frame a play when you know it's a big play and uh, the way that your mentality changes a little bit to, to make sure that you bookend everything and that uh, – somebody can hear a highlight and know what's happened as opposed to having to add in their own context clues? Well, the simple short answer that I would give you is it, that's impossible. And I've done a lot of work for Howard. I, I know him very well. And that's what he wants. He wants that every play. And um, you just never know when those are going to happen. Now, if it's a dramatic moment late in the game, then you can and you can kind of reset, take a breath. If it's a basketball game, you can uh, after every basket, as every possession is unfolding, just a quick reminder of the score and the margin and and where we are in the game. And if it's uh, football, if this is if we're running out of time and this may be the last possession someone has, and then you can do that. If you see a big play broken, then um, you can collect yourself if you're aware. And again, experience will help you do this. Um, you can kind of collect yourself uh, in time to put the frame around it and uh, let the play come to you. Uh, but sometimes those things just happen out of the blue <laughs> and you don't know they're coming. 
And no matter how much the producer would like everything perfectly framed all the time, sometimes it's not possible. So you do the best you can. I want to ask you about two plays in particular uh, for two very different reasons. Uh, and the first one is the Des Bryant catch uh, or no catch, uh, very famous or infamously. Uh, and how you handle a situation like that on a broadcast where uh, maybe you don't quite know what just happened and uh, and dealing with you know, understanding the rules and, and what a referee is saying and, and how you guys handled that uh, and if you would handle it the same way or differently looking back on it now. Well, keep in mind that uh, that was uh, a catch, and then it wasn't a catch, and now it is a catch. <laughs> uh, and the ambiguity in the rules is really is really um, a factor. Uh, another thing that's a factor in how you handle it is, to a lesser degree, who you're working for. If you're doing a network broadcast and you're impartial, that's a little different approach than that day when we were the Cowboys network, when I worked with Vern, he used to say, um, and I still use it all the time that we endeavored to do the games objectively from the Cowboys point of view. (laughs) And I think that's what your, I think that's what your audience was. If you're doing Rutgers football, then you do the game objectively from Rutgers point of view. And, in that case, that was a big play in the game. It mattered. And uh, we both also, as it turns out, love football enough that we want to see it right, whether it's good or bad. So the problem with that rule is clearly wasn't just us. I mean, the, the whole league. And I know they think they've simplified it, and I don't believe them. <laughs> I, I think that we're going to have a whole lot of fussing about it uh, in the coming year. And Babe. Babe and I have had different points of view uh, in the last couple of years because he maintains that it's easy to tell if it's a catch. Uh, you know, did you did you uh, possess the ball and body part down and didn't go to the ground and it came out? And my point of view is it's I have no idea what a catch is anymore. And and sure enough, there are I would say there are a half a dozen times a year. The last few years, when we would call the play, then we'll look at the – because we have the benefit of the replay, too, and we have the benefit of looking at all the replays that they show. And sometimes we will be in agreement. Sometimes we'll disagree with each other. And the things – the ones that make you want to slap yourself in the head are when you are absolutely sure that you know what you saw, describe that, and then the guy comes out and says something different. And you, what are you supposed to say then? Yeah. Other than, well, he saw something we didn't see. Uh, I think the I think the the way that you handle those is the best you can. You you are accurate in your description, and I don't think we're trying to fool anybody anymore. Once upon a time, we tried to really parse our words about looking at a monitor saying we were looking at a monitor, trying not to steal it. Hell, who are we fooling now? Everybody knows everybody's looking at a monitor. So I, I will always make sure that I am saying, because it's radio, we are looking at a replay. And uh, then I think you you can actually do the play-by-play the replay. 
Yeah. Okay, his left knee goes down, his right palm goes down, the palm doesn't count. The ball is still moving. Babe, is it moving? I think I see it moving, Brad. I'm not sure. And I think that's the answer. I think that's how you do it. You do it as you do it as best you can and be prepared for them to know or see something that uh, that you didn't. We had a play in Oakland last year that uh, we supposedly will never see again when Gene Steratore, who was the referee of that play in Green Bay, was doing the Cowboys and the Raiders, and they were so close on the measurement for a first down, a lot of people listening will remember it. He pulled an index card out and held it between the end of the ball and the, and the chain. I've never seen that. And that's what I said. He's pulling out a piece of paper. He's pulling out an index card and measuring. I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> and and he and he got chastised for that. And now he's retired, and no one will ever do that again. I guarantee you. But all you can do is say what you see. The other one I wanted to ask you about was uh, move over sweetness, make a place for Emmett. Um, and how much of that was spontaneous? Uh, how much of that was thought out? And I mean, obviously, you have to know that that moment is coming. Um, so kind of how you prepared for a moment that was going to be, uh, such a historical landmark to, to do it the right way. What, what I know about myself is that I'm not good at scripting calls. Uh, it's, it comes off when I try to do it as inauthentic. And I believe that authenticity is uh, one of the greatest virtues we have available to us. So I knew that I was going to somehow make reference to Walter Payton because I thought it was a it was one of the great records of the sport, and I had tremendous personal respect for Walter Payton. I didn't know what I was going to say about him. I didn't know if I was going to call him Sweetness or Payton or Walter. Or, I didn't know what, but I knew it. So I knew that his there was going to be a reference to him somehow. And the and you can't script it. The rest of it, I just. It made up, it has to come to you, and here's why. That was one of my least favorite calls in 40 years. Really? The run was not clean. Oh, yeah, it was terrible. The run, but Listen, we're tracking his every yard from day one because, you know, who knows? He, he could go 80. I don't think he was going to go 80 anymore at that stage, but he, he, who knows? So we had to make sure. Fortunately, I've got a great statistician who's been with me a very long time, and we were counting every step all year long. Now he's getting down to it. Well, I, I'd done a game in, I don't know if it was the same year or the year before, but uh, uh, the uh, game between Texas and Texas A&M that I did for Westwood One, where uh, Ricky Williams was playing for Texas, and he broke what was then Tony Dorsett's NCAA rushing record. And he did it with like a 60-yard touchdown run. Clean as a whistle, just as beautiful as Miss America. You couldn't, you could not, you could put a frame on it and hang it in the Louvre. It was that pretty. Perfect. Emmett, Emmett's banging off people. His hand is on the ground. He's, we're counting four yards, five yards. Is that, does he make it? Maybe that could be it. Wait. And nobody knows if he's down or, you know. And then we determined that he had it. And if you listen back to the call, you'll hear that. You'll you'll hear that that indecision before I said anything about move over sweetness. And then, of course, the irony is on the next play, he lost yardage and gave it back. 
And the play after that, he gained about 16 yards off right tackle. And I said, Emmett, I was looking for that two plays ago. Uh, (laughs) The the, uh, recommendation that I would make is to just be real. Uh, When I did Major League Baseball, I did not have a standard home run call because for me, it didn't work. For some guys, it works great. Um, Eric Nadell, when the Texas Rangers hit a home run, Homer Road, that ball is history. Somebody else on the other team hits it, it's just a home run. Uh, That doesn't work for me. I don't have a standard touchdown call. Uh, Because for me, what works best is to be as prepared as I can be and let the game come to me. I did understand that that was going to be a signature moment whenever it happened. And, you know, I'm not dumb. Um, I'm a little thick sometimes, but I'm not totally dumb. I, I understand that these these moments are going to be captured and replayed. And I understand why Howard Denneroff and other producers put such a premium on framing because that's what lives. That's what gets used on television. That's what gets used in your promotional announcements. Those are the moments that are on highlight films. That's what stays with you forever. And that's why it's important to try to be at the top of your game all the time. But sometimes, and the Emmett run is a great example, uh, you don't get what you want. Yeah. It's not, <laughs> you, you just have to describe what happens and try to be prepared and the sweetness part, I'm that part I'm happy with. I'm happy with the way it came out, but I had no idea that's what I was going to say until I opened my mouth and said it. Interesting. Uh, last thing I want to ask about on a serious note is uh, somebody else, actually, because uh, I read a cool article. Oh, we hadn't been serious up till now? Well, I mean, like the last serious. <laughs> I, I, I have two questions left. One is serious, one's not I'm serious. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about somebody else, because uh, there was a cool article about uh, your statistician uh, and, and Bob Thomas. Um, and we've talked in some conversations on this podcast about other people and how they contribute to the broadcast uh, and how important uh, a guy like he has been uh, to to what you guys have been able to do and, and, and how you work together and, and what the relationship is, when the relationship works best between you and a statistician. I think with our whole crew, Joe, we're, we are all... I'm not using the royal we. I mean, all of us would tell you the same thing. Uh, Christy Scales, our sideline reporter, and Babe, and uh, Bob's son, Sam, uh, who who I've known since literally he was born, uh, now is, is spotting, and our producer, Danny Miles, has been with us for years, home and road, and we we really all understand each other. We We each respect what the other one brings, we all know, and this uh, very much applies to a, a, an announcer and a statistician, but it's not exclusive to that, that we make each other better. Everybody takes pride in it. It's very much like a team. Everyone, ta- In fact, it is a team. It's just a different kind of team. Everyone takes pride in their own job, and everyone takes pride in the fact that uh, we, each of us can make the others on the crew better or worse. Now, the reality is that the announcers are the ones who people see and or hear. And so we're the ones who get the most attention. 
but we're not the ones who deserve the most attention. Bob Thomas uh, has, in fact, been my statistician for more than 35 years, and uh, there are a lot of good statisticians. Bob, is he knows what I'm thinking. He understands what I think is relevant and what Babe thinks is relevant. Um, unlike most statisticians, he uses a grease board on the wall. And we can look up at anything. We don't have to ask for anything to be handed to us. Uh, we can look up at any time and see any relevant statistic. And if there is something specific that we want, we pass him a note or talk to him in an IFB, and he's got it within seconds. But because he understands the game, because we are all a team that's worked together for a long time, we have a great deal of care and caring for each other. Um, he, he, he's just exceptional and I can't talk about him enough to suit me. Um, he has a radar O'Reilly like quality that sometimes it just, even after all these years, I, I will start to turn and look because there's something I want to say or a point I want to make. And he's already put it on a piece of paper in front of me. And what that does for the listener is immeasurable because it makes our, it makes what we're doing more seamless. And I really believe this in football. Again, I'm a big baseball guy. I love all the statistics. Don't understand all the next gen stats, but I do understand there are some things like, you know, I think whip is really a good indicator of what's going on uh, with a, uh, with a pitcher. I'm not too sure about war. I don't know what, how that really helps <laughs> me or, I mean, I understand why managers think that exit velocity is important and launch angle, and I don't know how that helps me very much in my enhancement of the game. Football's a little different to me. Football statistics can help. There's absolutely a place for for uh, next-generation statistics in scouting and in broadcasting, but it's not, to me... It's not a game to bury the, the audience, radio or television, in statistics. We get a packet every Tuesday during this regular season from the league after the Monday night game. They do a whole thing of the league statistics. And it's 20 pages of various things. It's all interesting if you don't have a life. But if you do, then you're is to find out which of those statistics presented in which way are relevant. What will help the audience's enjoyment and understanding of the game? All of those numbers won't do that. And what Bob does is a, he is a walking distillation of that. He automatically understands what I think and what Babe thinks are the most important things we can tell the audience that will help them go along during the game and understand it better. And that's what he gives us. And that I, I can't begin to say how much the audience has benefited from his work. That's awesome. Yeah. It's uh it's uh it's always a big help and it's the stuff behind the scenes, obviously that, that, that people don't see that uh, makes us. Well, I would smart, say this, so. I would say this and you'll understand it, but, but if, if if people might just try to imagine what it would be like if the announcers had no statistician. Yeah, 
it'd be wild. <laughs> or or one who was getting the information wrong. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, I have one other question, and it's off beat of what we've been talking about. Uh, but you and I share something in common as broadcasters in that we are uh, we are we are both members of the tribe. Uh, we are we are both Jewish. Um, I have broadcast in the last two years two college football games on Yom Kippur, um, and I know you uh, skipped a Cowboys game. I think in 2015 on Rosh Hashanah, um, and I was curious as we get close to the holidays again this year. Um, what the the internal battle you fight in yourself of do I do it or do I not um, when games fall on the high holidays that uh, sometimes people people go through and how you arrive at the decisions that you make um, based on uh, where you are every year? It's, of course, very personal, and there's no right or wrong answer. Your answer is right for you. My answer is right for me. And so there I have no internal battle. Uh, my faith is the most predominant thing in my life. So somehow for 37 years of doing Cowboy games, there was never a game on the high holidays. Now, I might have to, for this year, for instance, um, Rosh Hashanah begins on uh, the evening of September 9th. We have a day game in Charlotte. I will uh, stay in Charlotte. I won't go home with the team. I will stream my, I happen to belong to a very large synagogue in Dallas and we have two services. The second one will begin after I'm back at the hotel. I'll stream the Arab the night before service on my computer and I will go to a Charlotte synagogue on Monday. Uh, and then I'll fly home on Yom Kippur. Uh, but Rosh Hashanah is the same way. It's, it's not a choice for me, not a choice. I don't work on those days. I've never worked on those days. I have a a guy who's become a friend who's a Chabad rabbi in Dallas when I I didn't work on Rosh Hashanah in 2015. If that had been a day game, I'd have worked. Yeah. Just like this year. But it was a night game. And I wasn't working. That's It's not the most important thing. My relationship with my God is the most important thing. And I told the radio station, I, I, I won't be available. And, uh, in fact, Vern Lundquist came back and did that game. Yeah. And so, so he, my friend, uh, social media being what it is, I didn't know him then. And he found out about it and put it out. And this is Sandy Koufax, not pitching on you. No, it's really not. I have never in my life worked on the high holidays, but most of the time, it did not involve doing a game. It would be going to an office or doing a talk show or doing your regular shift or, um, and, and so fewer people noticed this had, I didn't do anything different. What was, what was different was when the holiday fell. Yeah. Um, but for me, for me, it wasn't a choice. And, uh, and I, I don't pass that off as being the right choice for anyone else. Because everyone's got to make their own decision. Um, I'm sure there are devout Christians who have to do games on Christmas or Christmas Eve uh, or Easter Sunday who are conflicted about that, and they resolve it in their own way. For us, for me, um, there's not a choice. The very first thing I look at always when the NFL schedule comes out in April is what's the situation with the high holidays. 
and there have been times that I've had to travel um, unusually uh, away from the team or stick around like I'm like I'm doing this year, staying in Charlotte on uh, Monday. But it's not a choice for me. It's not it's not ever a debate. It's the work is second. Brad, if people want to find you, uh, how do they find you on social media uh, or find Cowboys games and things of that nature? Well, Cowboys games during the regular season, uh, thanks to um, satellite radio, every NFL broadcast during the regular season and postseason, not preseason, is available on uh, Sirius XM. So that's the easiest way to follow the games, I'm told that uh, our flagship station, 105.3 The Fan in Dallas, uh, is a um, uh, radio.com station. I do know of a couple of people who tried to, who downloaded the app and tried to listen to our first preseason game, and they couldn't get it. So I don't know anything about that. That's above my pay grade. Uh, <laughs> but I do know that in the regular season and postseason, you can, you can follow us on satellite radio. Um, I am on uh, Twitter at... Uh, D like David, C like Charlie, underscore Vox, V-O-X. And I'm on uh, Instagram uh, at uh, Real Brad Sham. That is Brad Sham joining us here on PXPCast. Many thanks, as always, uh, for him taking the time. want to give a plug, by the way, to his podcast before I uh, lose everybody here in the outro. Uh, but Brad also has a podcast that is Cowboys-ish related. Uh, it's called Then and Now with Brad Sham. You can find it in the iTunes store by just searching Then and Now. Um, and it's really good in terms of uh, in-depth interviews with Cowboys-related people. Michael Irvin dropped this week. Uh, had Darren Woodson on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I mean, you can go back into May. Uh, had Roger Staubach on. I uh, actually had Vern on uh, back on May 1st. You can find that episode uh, I'll read you the description. Uh, they talk about the early years of his career in Dallas and all the way through his farewell tour uh, through the SEC. Um, and, and it's digestible, too. I mean, these are, for the most part, 30-minute episodes. Um, but it's good because they get to kind of dive deep into uh, the who, and obviously they, they talk a lot of Cowboys stuff in uh, these episodes, but it's a good... Um, it's a good portrait, for lack of a better word, of, of who these people are. So uh, check that out if you get an opportunity. I, I know you love audio. I know I gave you the pitch about uh, audible.com if you love audio uh, in the middle of the pod. Uh, if you want more audio, uh, go check out Then and Now. Then and Now with Brad Sham. Just search Then and Now in the uh, iTunes store, and uh, you can get yourself uh, on that RSS feed and whatnot to get that downloaded right into your phone each and uh, every time it comes out. Uh, we're out of time, though. We are way over time. Uh, Dave O'Brien is with us from the Red Sox next week. Ted Robinson from the San Fran 49ers after that. And uh, we'll have a football game to talk about on next week's pod because the Cardinals open Thursday. And because I always record this Thursday night because I'm stubborn that way, I'm going to be recording this at about 2 a.m. And we'll see how that goes. Uh, until next week. This is PXPCast. I'm Joel Gadette, and we are out.